Welcome back to another edition of the Unofficial Guide Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. This is a special iTunes show, and it's related to some news that has come out of California that Universal Studios Hollywood's Harry Potter Land has now gone into soft open. And before it actually opened to the public, our own Jim Hill got a special sneak preview, courtesy of Universal not hopping the fence, in order to see what was behind the curtain, as it were. Let's welcome Jim Hill to the show. Jim, how's it going? Uh, it's going great, Lynn. Special thanks to Gail Mancuso from Universal Publicity. Uh, honestly, in a way, I feel like I should apologize to Gail because I was out in California this week for a good dinosaur global media event. And, and then the very next day, I got to sit on a table read for, for the very last episode of Gravity Falls. Oh, really? Yeah, they're shutting down after 40 episodes. Those of us who missed the Mystery Shack. But anyway, I let Gail know that I was going to be out in California for this, like, two-day-long trip. Mm -hmm. And she was like, well, come over. And, you know, maybe we can get you in. I show up there Wednesday afternoon, and initially Gail has to break it to me gently that because nobody's there, <laughs> it's still a construction site, she can't bring me in. There were two ways to handle a moment like this. You either throw the tantrum because you come over, or you're understanding and professional. Yeah. And you're like, all right, so these things happen. So we sit and talk about what's going on with the project. And finally, at the end of the visit, Gail goes, ah, okay, let's try. Let's walk over and see if someone's there. We basically go in the back door, and she just warns me, I don't know how far we're going to get. You know, okay. just if I see a boss, if I see a supervisor, this could all end tragically. Yeah. <laughs> and it turns out that there is nobody there. So we not only walk the full length of the land, we actually go through virtually the entire queue of Forbidden Journey. In fact, the only thing I missed was in the, the lowermost portion, which, by the way, evidently they've added a chunk of the Slytherin common room. They have done an amazing job. Universal Creative has this habit of plussing attractions when they travel from east to west. A perfect example of this is uh, Despicable Minion Mayhem, that reimagining of Universal Studios Florida's old fantastic world of Hanna-Barbera and Jimmy Neutron mm -hmm. Nikton Blast. That opened July 2012, as I remember. And the way they set the scene for the simulator-based attraction was that they covered the facade of that theme park soundstage 42 with a full-sized version of Guru's house. Mm -hmm. You saw, you know, there's a chunk there of his super sleek villain vehicle and all that. Now, you contrast that with what Universal Creative did when they brought Minion Mayhem to Hollywood in 2014. Now, this time around, they couldn't retrofit a ride system because where they wanted to put this thing was the old T2 3D Battle Across Time show building. Oh. But they took advantage of that. What they did is they gutted the building, and instead of using just the one ride system that they had in place for Jimmy Neutron, they built two. Right off the bat, they doubled their capacity. And as for the placemaking part of the project, what they did, rather than just redressing the outside of a single soundstage, they built a Despicable Me Miniland. So you don't just get the house that Gru and the girls live in. You got a recreation of the suburban neighborhood that they called home, which included an interactive version of Miss Hattie's Home for Girls. And at the end of the street, you get a super silly fun land with a jet ride and a wet and dry play area. They even managed to throw in a food service component. There's the Gru Lab Cafe where you can get a freeze-ray smoothie, which is soda poured over this banana mango soft serve ice cream. And Universal did sort of the same thing. They saw what had happened when Universal of Florida had reimagined the area around the Simpsons ride back in late 2012-2013. So they changed that in kind of a mini Springfield USA. And 
But on the heels of how successful Fast Food Boulevard was with its full-size recreation of Moe's Tavern and Krusty Burger and Lard Lad Donuts, it's like, oh, we got to bring this west. Because in Florida, what they had done is they really had taken the old international food and film Oof. festival food court. One of, the, one of the worst restaurants in any theme park ever. No, that's it exactly. <laughs> oh, but they, they gutted it and made it this suitable setting for Cletus's Chicken Shack and the yeah. Frying Dutchman. So there wasn't anything like that on the West Coast. So they had to build from the ground up. The other thing that's kind of intriguing about that take on the project is the way they've positioned Springfield. If you were going to the lower lot or you're going to the tram tour or doubling back to go over to the Despicable Me Miniland, you were passing through Springfield multiple times. So they knew that we had to go hyper-detailed here because people were going to be traveling through this space a lot, mm-hmm. and we needed to give them as much to look at as possible. Okay. Springfield, USA, really inside the park, is the berm for Harry Potter. Oh, they, really? Yeah. So okay. the, what they did is they went up. This area had, features 24 multi-level facades. and you 24? 24. I mean, if there's ever a time we should do a walkthrough of Universal, it's after they open Harry Potter. Because this park, over the last four four and five years, between what they've done, transforming the center of the park, clearing out all of the attractions that have been there, shops, restaurants, gaming areas since the late 60s, early 70s, Mm -hmm. and really giving it a solid design language and better flow through with the Universal Plaza. This is a whole new park, or at least the upper lot is. And in the Simpson area, you get cool things like they have the Springfield nuclear power plant with an interactive feature where you can actually hit a button on the outside of the building and cause a m- nuclear meltdown. You know? <laughs> I mean, they have the cooling towers on the upper part of the building. You know, this, this alarm goes off that startles everyone in the street and then they begin to vent the cooling towers. If you're looking up, you can see Snake escaping from the Springfield jail. I mean, there's all this cool stuff. Even the original version of Hogsmeade, the very first Wizarding World, that was a retrofit. People don't really seem to remember that anymore, that that was actually the Merlewin section of that theme park's Lost Continent. Back when it opened in May of 1999, if you entered that part of the park from through Seuss's Landings, first section you hit was the Lost City. That's where the Mythos Restaurant is located, along with the Poseidon's Furious Special Effects Show. If you move uphill, you then encounter... The ancient Arab marketplace known as Sinbad's Bazaar, which is home to the eighth voyage of Sinbad's stunt show. And finally, at the very top of the hill, this is where you'd entered Merlinwood. It's supposed to be the medieval section of of Lost Continent. To get to the part of the story that maybe Universal Creative doesn't want me to tell, back when it came to the original Wizarding World, they kind of hedged their bets. They got into the Harry Potter game fairly late. There were still just two and three movies to go, and... It was kind of a concern in-house that once the last of the movies happened, that the phenomena would fade. Do we really want to go all in and just make all new attractions? So Hogsmeade Village actually got built around pre-existing stuff. So you, you had the Dueling Dragons Coaster. Mm-hmm. That was an opening day attraction in Iowa. The Flying Unicorn. That was a family-friendly coaster that got added July of 2000, roughly 18 months after the park opened, in an effort to increase capacity at the island and make it seem less intense and more kid-friendly. That was a knock on the park early on. And then there was the Enchanted Oak Tavern. This quick-service restaurant was pulled down in August of 2008. In fact, it was a place that a lot of people who visited the park loved because of its Mm hyper-detailing. Universal did something really intriguing. They took 
the kitchen food prep area. It was left intact. They basically wrapped it in heavy industrial plastic. For lack of a better term, they stuffed it in a baggie. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's like you're prepping your turkey for Thanksgiving. You just put it in the yeah, bag. Yeah, but Thanksgiving two years later. And then the three broomsticks was built around the still-standing kitchen and food prep area. And this was done supposedly to, to save some money when it came to the construction of, of Wizarding World. But... I think you will bear this out, Len, given that what you did with your house renovation. I mean, Mark Woodbury, uh, he's the president of, of Design and Development for Universal Parks and Resorts. I got to interview him at length in 2014, and he just flat out said if they had to do it again... Just demo that, everything. <laughs> yeah. Just having to build the three broomsticks and the Hoghead Tavern area around the pre-existing kitchen basically turns this part of the Hogsmeade construction project into the world's most expensive kitchen remodel. I get the whole, it seemed like a good idea at the time yeah. thing, but having to work around all of the existing thing, and you've got to worry about whether beams of wood fall on your kitchen equipment, which essentially ruined it. You mm. have to make sure that the stuff doesn't get damaged in any other way, that there's not six inches of dust that essentially contaminates everything, that you don't sever a gas line. I mean, it's just the amount of time that you put into preparation and safety for yeah. that sort of thing probably exceeds the cost of the kitchen equipment. You have the sound of a non-veteran. <laughs> you didn't see what I saw. I mean, let's, let's put it this way. My deck remodel, which was supposed to start in October, should start this next week, five months later. That's fine. Hey, I'm not bitter at all. <laughs> on a glacial scale, you're doing fine. Back to, that's why the IOA's version of the Wizard World has the layout it does. That Universal was working around these pre-existing assets, mm -hmm. which were dueling dragons. And after they took all the skulls out of the catacombs that were the queue, that became Dragon Challenge, the Flying Unicorn. When that family-friendly coaster opened, part of its queue included a wizard's workshop. And supposedly oh, really? the ancient wizard who lived there had built the cars for the coaster out of pieces of knight's armor and chunks of wood that he scavenged from the grounds of the dueling dragon's castle, the burned-out structure that was right next door. Huh. You folks who go to Harry Potter, every time you enter the park, you enter under a sign that says, mind the spell limits. Everyone seems to think that that's a riff on that in a normal city you see a speed limit sign. And it's like, no, that, that's actually part of the mythology that Universal Creative created for this part of Island's Adventure that's especially meant for those people who miss Merlinwood. You see, supposedly if you ask a team member there and you say, hey, I was here five years ago and there was a building that had a face of a magician and there was a dragon's castle and something with the universe. Where did that go? What happened? And it's like, they go, oh, well, that Merlinwood was actually the camouflaged version of Hogsmeade Village, that this was a spell that had been cast on this thousand-year-old Scottish village up in the Highlands. Really? So, well, yeah, the idea was that if you were a muggle and you climbed up into the hills and you made it this far, mm -hmm. you would have seen Merlinwood. You wouldn't have seen Hogwarts Castle. You wouldn't have seen Hogsmeade Village. But the idea was that on June of 2010, they lifted the spell, which now allows humans to see and experience the wonders of the wizarding world. The, the best part of it is the little shack that the wizard supposedly crafted the coaster in, that was actually Hogwarts Castle. That, that was the, the enchantment that was lifted. That if you made it that far, you found this like little shed. Oh, well, okay, it's a shed, not a castle. I didn't know there was that detail of a backstory on that. That's great. Supposedly, the reason behind the mind, the spell limits, that's not for the muggles. That's for the wizards and witches who are wandering the streets of Hogsmeade Village. That's the Ministry of Magic reminding everyone that if you misuse your magic or accidentally perform the wrong spell, 
you may cause the camouflage to come back on. All right. Oh. And so the park would suddenly turn back into Merlin. So don't do that. Oh, that's fantastic. That's a great yeah, story. It's a fun idea. Back to the West Coast version of Wizarding World. This time around, Universal Creative doesn't have to work around any pre-existing attractions. I mean, yeah, it's up against the Waterworld Arena, and it really sort of curves around that chunk. Once they cleared away the Gibson Arena, they had this clean slate up on the upper lot. So Alan Gilmore, he's the, the art director of all of the Wizarding Worlds that have been built at the Universal theme parks to date. And just to be specific here, that's the original Hogsmeade, which mm-hmm. opened in July of 2010, and then Diagon Alley, which opened at Universal Studios Florida in July 7, 2014. The second version of the Wizarding World of Harry Potter, which opened at Universal Studios Japan in Osaka, opened on July 15, 2014. So to picture wow. this, eight days apart, you open these hugely expensive, hyper-detailed Harry Potter-filled environments on opposite sides of the planet. That tells you, Jim, two things. One, how successful the franchise was. Mm-hmm. And two, Comcast's commitment to expediting the building of their hit properties, right? So Comcast, I think, has been willing to say, we've looked at the spreadsheets, we've looked at the numbers, and it makes sense for us to finish this project in two years, even if we have to run construction teams 24 hours a day, seven days a week, because we know that fans like this. And we'll make our money back. Wouldn't you love to have Alan Gilmore's frequent flyer miles right <laughs> <up there? laughs> Los Angeles, Japan. Los Angeles, Japan. Los Angeles, Japan. That's, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to Bora Bora. <laughs> you can make it to the moon. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So. But I mean, you look at that in the context of you know, this week, Universal announced a price increase, 3%, 5%, 7%, whatever. But we all look at that and we rationalize it by saying they're building so much stuff, whether it's mm-hmm. the new Kong ride or... The new Sapphire Falls or you know, the other towers for Cabana Bay, you look at that and say, that's the price of progress, right? Yep. You contrast that with something like Star Wars Land where mm-hmm. Disney's been kicking the idea around ever since they bought the intellectual property. And it's an open question as to whether my daughter, who is a senior in high school, finishes college before that thing actually fully opens. It's a completely different approach. I mean, Comcast is like, we know we, we have room to grow. And we will invest the money and get these things done sooner rather than later. And That's not a knock on Disney. I mean, it's two different business approaches, right? Disney's no. approach is we're going to take our time and it's going to cost mm-hmm. a lot of money. And eventually people will like it. Whereas Universal is like, essentially, it's a new e-ticket every, every year, every 18 months. We're talking the Orlando market. They're number two, a distant number two. That yeah. Disney has 70% of the market. Universal has 20, 21, 22, and... And then it's everybody else, the SeaWorlds, the Orlando yeah. Eyes, that sort of thing. But this is a hard-charging universal. That's why Comcast has handed them the money fire hose. Oh, yeah. You know? For the next few years. I mean, the thing is, I think uh, Disney's Hollywood Studios is mm-hmm. the least visited park in Walt Disney World. And they're getting about 10 million mm-hmm. visitors a year. That number might drop this year a little bit. But Universal, in comparison, I think they're at a little bit more than 8 million mm-hmm. for their most popular park. So even if they increased another 20% or 25%, mm-hmm. which is huge, they would essentially have to have another hair. Harry Potter-like bump, only then we, they would begin to approach the least popular of Disney's parks. So, I mean, it's a three-tiered system. If you consider after Universal, there's really nothing else memorable. That's the thing. They just sense that there's vulnerability there. And, and the way you get people to go back to Universal is by giving them a great time the first time they oh, go yeah. there. That's the thing that Disney has had going for it since 71, is that people have gone and have fond family memories mm-hmm. or went there with their parents or grandparents. And nostalgia really does drive a lot of our vacation oh, yeah. decisions. 
And Universal right now is, is for lack of a better term, creating pre-nostalgia. No, it's true. I, I get it. I mean, they're, I mean, they're essentially saying, you know, the kids of today who visit will eventually have kids in, you know, 10 or 12 years. There you go. You know, 15 years. And then we'll, we'll start the cycle that Disney has. Here's, a, here's another thought. You know, you meant, we mentioned a two-tier or three-tier system for attractions where destinations in Orlando where, you know, Disney's number one and Universal's a distant number two and everything's number three. It could be said that Universal's not trying to compete with Disney so much as they're just trying to eliminate the number threes. If Universal gets rid of SeaWorld and Fun Spot and all those places and essentially makes those very local-centric places, mm-hmm. they essentially suck up everything that's left of the non-Disney tourist market. That's another way of growing, right? And this way they don't have to compete with Disney directly. It's much easier to compete with SeaWorld. No, I agree. I mean, it's not like in our world where we're all working harder. We're not getting more vacation time. No. When you go to Florida, you still have that three, four, five days, and you make decisions based on this is as much time as I have. You take a SeaWorld off the table because you want to spend two days at Universal. That's, that's true. Yeah. That's true. All right. Wait. So, Jim, so let's, let's walk through Universal Studios Hollywood, and I want to I go this way. You're walking through the back entrance with your PR person from Universal, right? So there's like a gate that you go through that's construction. And as soon as you get on the other side of the gate, what what do you see? Where are you at? So you come in under the gate. You're going under the Hogsmeade, the Mind, the Spell Limit sign. Okay. And what's really great about Alan, when they built the Wizarding World in Florida, it's Florida. It's flat. And likewise, Osaka isn't necessarily known for its hilly terrain. Whereas Universal Studios Hollywood is surrounded by the Hollywood Hills. And if you go with the mythology that J.K. Rowling created, Hogsmeade Castle is hidden up in the Scottish Highlands. So what Alan did is they actually positioned the castle so that it's backed up by the Hollywood Hills. So you you literally get that we're nestled in the, the Scottish Highlands feel. Because this is the Hollywood version of Hogsmeade Village, it really is, for lack of a better term, much more cinematic. I mean, they've done things like it's a wider street that curves... And the way they positioned the castle, it now looms over the village. I mean, as you're coming in, you can actually see behind the chimneys of, of Hogsmeade the castle. And we're still dealing with a force perspective, a bigger force perspective this time. Mm-hmm. It really does just kind of heightens your excitement, like, holy cow, it's right there. And the way it works is that the street curves. You know, you only get to see the full castle when you reach the end of the street, which is something they wanted to do in Florida, but just because they were handcuffed by the topography. One of the things that really cracks me up about islands is because Universal Studios Florida next door was so flat. They aggressively made islands. Or you go up, you go down. And that's sadly one of the guest complaints about the park is like, why am I constantly walking uphill? <laughs> And it's like, because we did it, all right? Because it's flat next door. So you've got wider streets. And the uh, curve, that's that's super interesting. You may remember from the Florida park, when you get to the center of Hogsmeade, there's kind of a low wall and a frozen fountain. Mm-hmm. That's gone. And that was literally taken away because it's like, look, from a foot traffic, yeah. guest flow point of view, it's a wonderful detail. It's very authentic. In fact, I remember Alan talking about in the older Scottish villages, this was actually the water point where you went if you lived in the village to get the water. Mm-hmm. And it's just sort of like, that's a lovely detail, but this is a theme park, not a movie set. It has to go. Yeah. If you're in a space-constrained place like Universal Studios Hollywood, I can see that. It's actually a detail. I, I love the detail, but it's mm-hmm. one of those things that it's easy to overlook. Yeah. And it is sort of a minor inconvenience when you're trying to walk across the narrow street. So as you enter, to your left, you have Zonko's, the gift shop, bigger. 
you have the candy shop where you can get your chocolate frogs again bigger and now we arrive at the three broomsticks and you may have been noticing a phrase here len bigger this isn't a case of what disney did with uh, Main Street USA was translated from Anaheim to Orlando. What they did, they just ratcheted it up a little bit. I mean, it's, for example, you go into the three broomsticks and the ceiling area is just that little bit higher so they can put in more detailing. The dining room is that much deeper. They didn't have to build around the Chanted Oaks kitchen area so there's better flow to the space. Yep. One of the details I love in Orlando is as you're sitting in Three Broomsticks and eating your meal, if you look up into the shadows of the ceiling, you'll see things moving around like little specters or ghosts. Are they doing the same sort of effects in, in they Hollywood? They are, but sadly when I was in there, it was the one of the only areas in the park that wasn't doing the audio, the, the sound mix. Yeah, oh, okay, was, so it just was wasn't on. turned on. Okay. We had to leave the space because they were bringing in the wait staff for orientation. I okay. Mean, <laughs> when Gail was nice enough to take me through my walkthrough, I mean, but when we th- went through Filch's Emporium, we walked in on the Universal team members who were going to work in the shop, sitting on the floor going over what the items were. You know, this is oh what you God. sell. These are the price points. Thanks again to Gail for getting me in this early. So you go to Three Broomsticks, you, uh, you walk down the street. What do you come to next? Okay, as you come to the top of the street, I mean, you pass the Owlry, which is in the same position. They learn from what they did in Florida. So the, the street that's behind the Owlry is that much wider. We know we're going to get crowds this time. We've learned. As we're passing through this area, I swear to God, we, there's a guy on his hands and knees working on the slate floor trying to make it look a thousand years old. All right. <laughs> you know, and it just He's trying to make just, it look dirty. <laughs> well, that, that's the thing cuz this is the place where all the owls hang out. So he's down there trying to make it look like the owls have used this as their bathroom for the Yeah, what does thousand-year-old owl guano look like? I mean, uh, this guy knows, apparently. This guy knows. Right. So, so come to the top of the street. Interesting choice. Instead of Ollivander's being on your right as you get to the top of the street, they placed it on the left. This is the one place where I think they did, in fact, make a mistake because when I was, was talking with Gail, she mentioned that they've decided to stay with only the two. And I, I'm sorry if I'm blowing a secret here, but Ollivander's, there's actually two rooms in Florida. It's a very low capacity. It's charming. It's one of the yeah. best shows they do in the park, but it's a very low capacity, slow loading. This is in uh, in Iowa, because in USF, the Ellivanders is, I think there's four rooms? Yeah, four rooms. Yeah. So I was kind of hoping they'd at least double up, and it's mm-hmm. like, no, it's it's back to the original two configuration. So wow. it's going to be a slow moving line, folks, but it is so worth it. Go check it out. It's a great, great show. Is it the same show concept? Yeah. Groups of, I think it's 27, and one person gets plucked out of the crowd and has just this amazing cinematic experience. As we came in, they were running the hippogriff empty, but just cycling it to make sure it would be ready for the the folks who are coming to the soft opening today. It's on the right side of the street, has far better positioning. It's got a lot more twists and curves. It's not necessarily as high, but it looks like a more intense ride. Still okay for kids, though? Yeah, yeah. And okay. the beauty part of it is is because it's now so close, they kind of bookend the, the back part of the park. Hogwarts Castle with Forbidden Journey and, and the Flying Hippogriff that a parent who's got kids of a different age can actually just send the, the older kids into Forbidden Journey and there's benches and set up there, have the other kids experience the Flying Hippogriff and then be able to recapture the older kids as they come out of Forbidden Journey. It's, That's thinking. That's good. Yeah. So lessons from the previous park applied. Because they're at the very back of Harry Potter Lane, you got to go deep. 
that'll free up the streets below. Going back to Hogwarts Castle, you basically went in through the exterior queue, and because you don't have the Dragon Challenge, if we go back to the bottom of the street where they have the lockers, they make it look like a luggage area that's next to the, the Hogwarts Express, which come through the gate, that's the first thing you see. This area has now been changed into a fun photo op. For Hogwarts, so kind of like they did pre-Diagon Alley. There you go. So the Hogwarts Express is a prop, not an actual train. Not yet. You know, not yet. That's not where yet. I was going with that question. Just understand that Universal views the, the Harry Potter business as an ongoing affair. As far as you know, no. <laughs> there yes. we go. Continuing on. So again, because you don't have the Dragon Challenge, you get to do some of the fun stuff that's in the queue of the Dragon Challenge in the Forbidden Journey queue. So, for example, as you're walking up the street and look to the exterior queue for Forbidden Journey, what's sticking up sort of nose down into the ground? But the Weasley family's flying car, and the wheels are still spinning. That's a fun photo op. You're in the queue, and, and again, again, you can see it from the street. Gail starts to take us to be up the walkway. So we basically start in the outside portion of Professor Sprout's greenhouse for the, the herbology class. And okay. we actually pass a workman who's spraying the sealant on the stonework very shortly tens of thousands of people are going to trudge up these stairs every day yep. and so it's like just sealing in the, the hyper detailed paint and all that so we now duck in start in the interior portion of the queue and they have just done such a smart job but they take everything that was great about the queue space for forbidden journey and all the wonderful environments you pass through the defense against the dark arts class and that sort of thing and it's all just that little bit bigger and there's new story points where you pass like some great tall statues of of wizards everywhere that it was tight everywhere that you felt a little crunched in by the crowd or claustrophobic they've raised the ceilings they push back the walls where you encounter the fat lady in the painting Mm -hmm. that's positioned differently that they give that some more space it's a smart decisions all the way through more living paintings the digital projection wow musion is really cool you know that whole well, you know you bought it for a moment or two like that kind of looks like the real performer the big thing is think about the how much technology has changed in the Absolutely. six years we've got 4k you know projection tvs and stuff where before we didn't so the resolution is going to be so much better on those sorts of things the reason they went with digital projection is remember that the difference about this version of the Forbidden Journey is it's the first time it's going to be in 3D. So right, right. You're going to be handed your Quidditch goggles and put those on. And so the digital projection is actually part of it. it that's much clearer, that much brighter. That'll make it work as a 3D attraction. But Godlin, when we finally made it to the actual load area, mm-hmm. they had shut down the, the Kuka Arms for the day, but the work lights were on, so you could actually see where the creatures were that hold the flying benches. Oh, dear Lord, Len, it was like something straight out of Terminator 3D. I mean, those things are going to rise up and kill us all someday. <laughs> I mean, if you knew the scary robot that was behind you holding your flying bench, you would never get on this. You'd ride. be more terrified about that than the story. <laughs> no, that's it exactly. That's but, fantastic. Um, is it perfect? No. Some of that are just things that are going to change over time. I mean, for example, Universal Greens Department has done an amazing job. They went out and got all these fir trees and pine trees and have planted them all around the exterior queue for uh, Forbidden Journey. Mm -hmm. So this is what's the buffer between the land that's right next to it. I mean, you've got the, the huge Simpson ride show building. You've got the walkway that leads down to where you board the tram. 
you have to plant relatively young trees that will then grow and fill the space. Right. So, yeah, there's a little visual intrusion at this point. But that'll change in months, if not a year or more. You'll be in a thick pine forest walking through that space. But based on what's there now, mm -hmm. it is such a smarter, bigger, more attractive cousin of the original Wizarding World. Everything that was great about that version is here only better, again, uh, only plussed. It's like the girl next door from Kansas went to a Hollywood and got glammed up. There you go. We are talking, I believe, about an April 7th opening. Official. Uh, I mean, it's, it's probably yeah. open, soft open now. The thing about a soft opening is it will open and close, all right? Anybody yeah. who goes to the park during this period is not guaranteed to get in. So yeah. just be cautious about that. Yeah, they are, and they're, they're testing a just phase. So you could go one day and find that nothing's open, and that's just the luck of the draw. But April is when it'll be open, open. Yeah, but they're not kidding around. When you go in the back door at Universal, when you go through Walter's Gate, there is a countdown clock. Back when I, <laughs> I walked past it, it was 56 days and so many hours and so many minutes, and they're chugging it right down. When I left that day, just by accident, ended up at exiting through the new entrance complex off of Hollywood 101 and the giant new parking garages that have been built there and the newly landscaped entrance. I mean, this is how they, they envision you entering. And then park your car and you basically walk down the length of City Walk, which lots of new restaurants going in there, land, lots of new shops. I mean, this is all about a freshening up, reboot, relaunch of you know Universal Studios Hollywood, which, as Gail was telling me, they, they are looking to position as a destination resort. And this is going to be interesting to see what happens in this park. I mean, face it, Universal, just like we talked about in Florida, really does kind of run second to Disneyland mm -hmm. in Anaheim. But it'll be interesting to to see how Universal capitalizes on this in Hollywood. And I guess, what's the next thing that they, they announce after Hogsmeade uh, is up and running? But Based on what I saw, folks, it's a worthy uh, follow-up, taking all the lessons that have you know, from the previous versions of this and applying them, and it's easier to move through. I cannot tell you how stunning it is to stand there at the end of the street and look at Hogsmeade Village and see the castle rising up there. They've done a beautiful job. That's fantastic. So, Jim, real quick, one more thing. We mentioned three broomsticks in terms of food. We haven't said anything about butterbeer, but I'm assuming it's there. Oh, oh yes, yes, yes. And it, thank you for reminding me, because it turns out folks who went to the celebration of Harry Potter this year down mm -hmm. in Orlando, they, they were there as they introduced that brand new product, butterbeer fudge. Well, it turns out that for Universal Hollywood, they're actually going to introduce another, and I guess it's going to be exclusive for a while, butterbeer a related product. Gail was a little vague about it, but it's it's a, it's a pastry of some kind that, that that's that's made with butterbeer or a muffin or something to that effect. But oh. yeah, this this will be. I say this for all the diabetics out there, you know, like myself. Look, but don't touch. Exactly. All right, you'll take it and then have to lie down for a couple of weeks. So no, just <laughs> just let the other family members have it. All right. So there's a, there's definitely butterbeer. There's some new stuff, and then oh, um, God, yeah yeah. Uh, and then let's talk uh, briefly about merchandise. So one of the things that still astounds me to this day about Universal Florida, uh, the Harry Potter things there, is that there is always a constant line of people buying merchandise to the extent that you don't even see it like in the Emporium on Main Street and Walt Disney World. That it's, and you and I joked about this one time we were walking through the park and, and we, we tried to speculate on how big the truck was. <laughs> that has to haul the money out of Universal every day 
because of Harry Potter. Like, like we know it's like not a, it's not a, a pickup truck. It was like, is it a dump truck or you think they use semis now? What, so what, uh, is the merchandising sort of the same? Yeah. You know how when you come out of the Forbidden Journey, you come down a set of stairs and you're in Filch's Emporium. Mm-hmm. Filch's in Florida is a little tight. It's kind of hard to get through. They've got a deliberately low ceiling because it's a small room in a castle. That was the feel they were going for. The one for Hollywood is a simpler design with higher ceilings. I mean, it's still very reminiscent of what was in Florida. But just the notion of, okay, we know thousands upon thousands of people are going to be in this space and frantically trying to buy things. So let's make it easier for them. My understanding is that we're looking at basically the exact same merchandise mix that we we have in Florida. They are looking going forward for ways to give people the specialized stuff that they want. You know, that that sort of moving water poster they have of Sirius Black. Mm-hmm. They want to make that available to guests. You know, they want you to be able to, yes, by the way, I'm wandered, you know, in the wizarding world. Just keep that on your desk at work. And <laughs> I'm a badass. Look, you know, I got out of Azkaban just last week. In our tablet world, that would seem to be easy to do. But everything is about trying to figure out how to make this affordable, which is kind of ironic because when you go into the shops and look at some of the Harry Potter merchandise, it's like, yes, my 20 $25 plush version of Hermione's cat. I must have that. <laughs> exactly. All right, good. So uh, it'll open officially April 17th? Yep. And would you saying that Guy is in there or going to go in there today, right? right? Our Disneyland guy, Guy Selga, uh, yeah. is headed out to Universal Studios Hollywood today because he heard it would soft open. So hopefully we'll get a full report on that within the next oh. week or so. It's so weird to be in a, a land like this designed to be filled with thousands of people yep. and to be standing in an empty. By and yourself. It just, it's like we were at uh, Streets of America a couple weeks ago. Well, there you go. Like, that wasn't deliberate last <laughs> week. <laughs> that, was, uh, that was strange in a different way. The, uh, the other interesting thing, though, is a uh, guy has been to all of the Harry Potter lands uh, around the world so japan orlando really? and he's oh, he'll wow. go to california now too so he'll uh, he'll be great maybe we'll have him on a show we'll talk about the, the different oh, perspective no, I'd, I'd, I'd love to have him chime in about the differences between the osaka versus orlando versus hollywood i mean great. that would that would that would be killer well, we have to do that all right cool all right thank you guys very much for uh, for listening to this this has been the unofficial guide disney dish podcast with jim hill please go into itunes and Stitcher and rate our show and tell us 